This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You've got to have the right case because if you take it up and it's the wrong case, then you can make some really bad law that's going to affect a lot of plaintiffs. There's always an answer. The joy is in finding. One of the reasons that I love being a lawyer is this exact process. The way we live our life has nothing to do with the presentation sequence at trial. As trial lawyers, we pick up and move on and keep going. You're losing or gaining one out of every 10 jurors, which can really make a huge difference in the ultimate result of the case. Whatever you think about, you create. Learn all you can and never stop. And then have the guts to try case after case after case. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation, your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Today on Trial Lawyer Nation, we have attorney Hans Poppy out of Kentucky. Hans, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Michael. How are you? I'm doing great. Hans is a great lawyer. I met him through the trucking groups, but he's also had incredible success in the areas of medical negligence. Um, I know you do other kinds of cases, too, and I'll ask you about that in a bit. Uh, but first, just tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure. I practice in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, we have a, a small law firm for lawyers. Uh, we focus entirely on uh, plaintiff's work. We don't represent insurance defenses, companies, or anything like that. And we focus on catastrophic injuries and death cases. And we also do business-to-business litigation towards. Um, been open since 2004. 2004 is when I went out on my own, and I've been practicing, uh, I guess this is 21 years. Yeah, 21 years. So we do medical malpractice, insurance, bad faith, uh, semi-truck wreck litigation, the standard uh, personal injury wares, but we we do focus on catastrophic injury and death cases. That's a nice thing to focus on. How did you get to the point where you could focus on catastrophic injury and death cases? I mean, just Starting out hanging up your own shingle, people aren't necessarily going to hire you on those. Well, you're right, especially since I started my law firm when I was only four years out of law school. I had practiced for a well-known personal injury lawyer here in Kentucky right out of law school, so I've never done insurance defense work other than when I was a law clerk. And uh, I went out on my own in 2004 and just gradually built my practice up over the years by remaining focused on um, case selection and making sure people in the community or in the state and outside of the state knew exactly what we were interested in and what kind of cases fit our profile. And so we started small and just had some success and uh, had started getting uh, large verdicts and people recognized that we were good at what we were doing. And it's our, our practice is almost, not quite, but almost hundred percent referral based. We do we do get cases um, from former clients, current clients, but the vast majority of our cases come from other lawyers. Yeah, mine too. Uh, so you said you let people know what you know what is it you do. How do you, how have you let people know? Uh, well, we do we do like most people do. We do CLEs that focus on the areas in which we practice. And we maintain relations with um, a referral network of lawyers. We have a newsletter uh, that we send out a monthly newsletter. And it it highlights the cases that we're handling. It highlights when we get a nice jury verdict. And, it let you know, got listed over in the corner are areas of practice. 
So it's just generally well known in the community and in the state what kind of cases that we're handling. And we reach out to the lawyers and remind them that we're here and this is the kind of cases that we handle. If you have an opportunity to work together, we'd love to work with you. Do you put on your own CLEs or do you, or is he speaking more at other organizations? Other organizations so far. I have toyed with the idea of doing that, but you know, I, I, I don't know where I would get the bandwidth to organize a CLE, but I, I, I really would like to try. I, I encourage you to do it. Uh, there's nothing better at, at building your brand and also giving you the freedom to talk about what, what you think is most useful to your audience rather than what someone on a committee picked for you. Uh, you know, we do it. It's been a lot of fun. It's turned into a great success. Uh, we, I'd be happy, uh, you know, reach out to me anytime and uh, get you on on the phone with Delisi, our marketing director, talk about what we've done and the, all the mistakes we've made as well as what's worked. Uh, but I, I really do encourage you to do it. I'll, I will take you up on that. I always love to steal somebody else's playbook. You're, uh, most of mine was stolen from someone else, too. So don't, there's not there's not a whole lot of original things in this world. We all help each other. Well, what they say, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Absolutely. Uh, now, you've done really well. And what's your trial record lately on MedMal cases? You told me before we started, and it's just something that's hard to be, it's hard to even believe. I know it's true, but it's just. Uh... We we have won three of our last four MedMal trials. And the fourth one is one we probably should not have won. Uh, so we lost the one that we should have lost. And in those three Med mal trials, we've gotten punitive damages on all three of them. So we we have been very um, focused on um, trying medical malpractice cases a little bit differently than than typical. Tell me about that, because that's not. I think med mal historically has like a ten to twenty percent at most win rate for plaintiffs. I mean, it's one of the areas where the defense does best. You're right. It, uh, medical malpractice cases are particularly challenging. Here in Kentucky, there is about an 80 to 90 percent defense win rate when there is a healthcare provider uh, at trial. And, you know, that's, that's what I tell my clients is that's particularly chilling because medical malpractice cases are extremely expensive. And so what you've got is um, the lawyers who handle med mal cases is a very narrow, small group of lawyers here in Kentucky that actually take these cases to verdict because you got to be able to put a hundred grand on the line and, and know that there's an 80% chance that you're going to lose it. And so the, the pool of lawyers that actually take these cases to verdict is small. And so they're the best lawyers. So we're not talking about the bottom end of lawyers, we're talking about the top end of plaintiff's lawyers that are taking these cases to verdict, and they're they're losing 80% of the time. So you you really got to be hyper-focused on case selection and picking the right case, because as other people have mentioned on your podcast, and I will verify, uh, you make money on the cases you don't take more than you make money on the cases that you do take. Uh, so, so we have really um, screened our cases very closely. And probably the most important element, uh, so, so case selection is number one. That's the most important thing is case selection. And then one of the things that I tell my, my associates is every case is actually three cases. There's the case you sign up on day one. 
There's the case that you prepare for trial. And then there's the case that you actually try in the courtroom. And none of those three cases are the same. <laughs> so you, you got to be able to look at this case and, and think about it in terms of where it's going to be by the time that the jury gets the case. And you got to be willing to move and adjust throughout the case. So the case selection is key. And then the, the, the second thing that I think is super important in these medical negligence cases is um, you got to find something else. The case, if you go into a courtroom and you try a case against a physician based just on medicine, the likelihood is you're going to lose. That's the 80% of cases that get lost because there's so much. And, and, and I got to give credit to the defense lawyers. The defense lawyers that, that do medical negligence cases are really, really good. They're not the bottom of the barrel either. They're really good lawyers. And you don't even need to be a good defense lawyer to win a med-mal case. But here in Kentucky, we've got some really good med-mal defense lawyers. And they really work these cases hard. And there's so many areas of opportunity for them to say, you know, this is just medical decision making. You know, even if the best care is given, you can still have bad outcomes. This is just a bad outcome. I mean, so many different defenses that you and I don't have in our truck wreck cases. I mean, we got rules and we got regulations and we got standards, industry standards, and we've got custom and practice. But when you're talking about medicine, you know, there generally isn't a textbook where you can go and say, if you do this, nothing bad happens. You know? right. So 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 they've got so many different areas that they can go to. So what what I am always looking for in every mouth dead mouth case is what is this case really about? Why did this really happen? And if you can get past some of the medicine and find the other angle and focus in on the other angle. They're not, the, the other side is not used to that. If you're, if you're trying a case, um, for example, in the most recent um, suicide death case, um, suicide death cases are basically impossible because you've got a person who dies by suicide. Um, how does a jury not apportion most of the fault to the person who suicided? Well, in our case, the jury apportioned 2% fault to the guy who suicided. And, and the reason why is because we built up a case that starts way before our guy suicides. And in that case was built up on the business practice of the pain management clinic and why that business practice, this model that they had created, ultimately resulted in the unavoidable outcome of someone not receiving the care that they should have got and then a bad outcome occurs. Um, so in that case, we focused on how is this practice built? And in that situation, this practice was built with, um, it had grown to 15 offices, 14 physicians, 
45 mid-level providers and a contract that they make the patient sign that says, you get to see a doctor on your first visit, and then every visit after that, you're going to see a mid-level provider. And we found the prescription that they had given our guy where they improperly cut his medication in half. The prescription was given to the patient by a mid-level provider, and it had been written four days before his office visit. What do you mean by a mid-level provider? Uh, Oh, a mid-level provider would be a nurse practitioner or a physician's assistant. So someone that does not have an MD after their name. So they wrote the prescription four days before they even saw the client. That is correct. And it was for it was for half of his normal dosage. And so what we were focusing on is not a medical decision that was being made. What we focused on was the business decisions that were being made. And the jury did not like how they practiced medicine because it, it, it in fact, was not a pill mill. It was a pill drill. They just went through the drill. They just went through the motion, get the patient in, give them a prescription, get the next patient in. So we showed how the way this practice was built, there are 15 doctors and the doctors aren't seeing the patients. The nurses are seeing the patients, but the doctors bill a doctor's rate even when the nurse sees the patient. So each doctor has four nurses or five nurses under him. They see a patient every 15 minutes. And so the doctor bills four doctor visits every 15 minutes, even though he never sees the patient. And and so it's that kind of looking past the medical issue, which they wanted to focus on, which was this was a reasonable medical decision to make. He was on too high a dose of meds. We reduced the dose of meds. Perfectly reasonable. We focused on No, this decision was made before you ever saw the patient. And the mid-level provider that saw the patient had no experience in managing pain medication. And so there was no medical decision because of the business decisions that were made. Uh, That resulted in a $7 million verdict in the suicide case. $3 million for uh, the loss of consortium for the daughter, $3 million in punitive damage, $3 million 100,000 in punitive damages, and then $875,000 for um, conscious pain and suffering of the decedent. So the, the de- I don't think the defense ever saw it coming. It was a zero offer case. So what did you do to discover the, first of all, to come up with the idea of looking at the business practices and then to discover what they were? Well, the, the interesting thing about the case was all of those facts, with the exception of the prescription, because we had they produced the prescription. So we knew the date of the office visit, and we could see the date that the prescription was written on was four days before the office visit. What was what was really interesting about the case, though, was we never asked a single question about it in deposition. We never asked a single question about the business practices in, in deposition. We knew from their website how many physicians they had, how many office locations they had, how many nurse practitioners they had. We did ask some general questions about, okay, you know, the patient didn't get seen by a physician. You know, the patient got, the patient was seen by a mid-level provider. So, you know, 
what's that about? And, you know, they, they just peripherally around the edges, you know, they told us this is, you know, but we really didn't focus in on fighting with them in depositions about this is good or this is bad or this is not appropriate. We, we saved it all for trial. So it kind of came out of nowhere for them uh, to, to try to, you know, when we just start asking them questions in the direct examination of the office, like, for example, we never deposed the CEO of the practice group. We listed him as a witness on our witness list, but we never took his deposition. And so he didn't have any idea what we were going to ask him until we put him on the stand. So it, it, like I come back to, we didn't, now granted, we had doctors, a psychiatrist and a pain management doctor come in and testify on the medical issues. But, but Michael, when, when we talked to the jury after the verdict, they were out for three and a half hours. They literally spent like 10 or 15 minutes on liability. That's, they, they, they focus on damages, which is exactly what we wanted them to do. I mean, that's exactly where we want them to be, but it's because we didn't, we didn't focus on the medicine. I mean, we focused on business decisions led to bad medical outcomes. The, the fact that there was a medical decision made or not made was almost irrelevant. It was, we don't like their business practice and it was inevitable that bad stuff happened. Um, similarly, the, the MedMal case that we tried before that one in one was a $21.3 million verdict involving an unnecessary pacemaker. Once again, we focused on the business practices of the hospital and how it got entangled up with cardiologists and how they were incentivizing cardiologists to do heart procedures with zero monitoring for medical necessity. And, and so that case became more of than just, did this guy have a, you know, an electrocardiogram strip that showed that he needed a pacemaker or was it business practices lead to incentivizing physicians to do things that they should not do. Because I had an expert once who, who told me um, on the stand, told the jury, he said, uh, you know what the problem with incentives are? They work. Yeah. I think that's brilliant. Uh, the Because people do, if, if it's a doctor doing their best, people give the doctor the benefit of the doubt in a medical decision making. But when you go into the dirty reality of, you know, this is a money-making for-profit enterprise, it's not only money-making for-profit enterprises, but the system disincentivizes good care. I mean, mm -hmm. doctors get paid for every patient they see. They don't get paid for how good of a job, how thorough of an exam. So a doctor that spends very little time with each patient or, or even sends the patient to go see someone like a PA or a nurse practitioner will make more money than a doctor that sits there, does a thorough exam, listens to their patients. And I think that, that you know, people hate that about medicine. And I, I think that's brilliant to make the case about the, the ugly side of the business of medicine. It, it is. And it's, it, it really changes the dynamic of a case when you can focus the jury's attention on something other than the white coat and the stethoscope. 
um, when you can when you can show this is a, a business and they have chosen, they've made choices about how they're going to run their business. For example, one of the other things that came up in the suicide case was we got the bills, didn't ask any questions about it in discovery. Got the bills. Every single office visit was billed as a 99214. A 99214 is the second highest level of an office visit that you can bill for. Takes about 30 minutes to do a 99214. Well, we've already got the testimony that the, the scheduler schedules a patient every 15 minutes. But they're billing a 99214, which is a 30-minute code. And they're billing it not under the nurse practitioner's billing rate. They're billing it under the doctor's billing rate. So they're maximizing their revenue at every opportunity. Get the most patients in that you can, bill them at the highest rate that you can, and don't even give them the same. And bill them at, for a doctor when a doctor doesn't even get to see them. So it's those types of things uh, that that lead the jury to say, ah, I see why this happened. Yeah. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to Delisi at CowanLaw.com. That's D-E-L-I-S-I at CowanLaw.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. And now, back to the show. Uh, the, the third case where we got punitive damages in was a similar thing and with a twist, which was it was a physician's assistant who did a cursory exam on a patient. The patient's daughter was in the exam room and said he never did a physical exam, although he charted that he did one. and. We got what's called the audit trail, which for your listeners who don't do medical negligence cases, the audit trail is an electronic document that hospitals and physicians' offices are required to maintain that tracks each and every time an individual logs into a patient's chart, and it tells you what, if any, changes, modifications, or edits are made to the patient's record. Well, in that case, we got the audit trail. And the audit trail revealed that after the patient died, several days later, the physician's assistant got into the patient's chart and modified the history and physical and and the assessment. Wow. And he did not know when we asked him in deposition, he didn't know that we knew and that we had the audit trail because we hadn't asked any questions about it. So all we did was ask him whether he is supposed to make his notes contemporaneously with the patient's visit. And the answer was yes. And we got him to say, and there would have been no reason for you to modify the history and physical and assessment once you had done it because there aren't going to be any changes. And he said yes. But then at trial, we confronted him with the audit trail and he had no explanation for why he was in the patient's chart several days later making changes to the patient's chart 
we got into evidence the fact that he um, received productivity bonuses based on the number of patients that he saw. We got into the record that he was running behind on the day that he saw my client and was already 15 to 30 minutes behind on his schedule. And that, we argued, is why he didn't do a proper physical examination of the patient. So once again, it came back to, we're not trying a case about what happened in the exam room right then and there. We're trying the case about what business decisions are made and how those impact patient care to lead to, not all the time, but sometimes it leads to a bad outcome because you haven't structured your business around patient care. You structured the business around productivity. And in this case, we also had the added, and you did something shady with the records that you can't explain. Yeah. And I think that patients, I mean, you have to know you're going to try the case. I mean, the so many lawyers, we want to get the case settled. And so we just kind of show them everything we got in the depot. Um, and if you don't think the case is, you think there's a likelihood the case will go to trial, having the patients to hold back and keep your mouth shut about it, I think really helps because these doctors are smart. Uh, you and I both had a, a man that really, I think, mentored us some uh, coming up. Tom Rose, who since passed away, was a great, great lawyer. And I remember him telling me, like, always put the doctor on the stand first because they're smart. And if you let them listen to all the testimony, they're going to come up with an explanation for it, everything that happened by the time they go on. That $21 million verdict, I tried that case with Tom. Um, now, that was the third. We, we had filed 500 cases. And that was the third one to go to trial. We lost the first two. and. That's another lesson uh, from trial is uh, you, you, you got to have the stick to itiveness and the you know, wherewithal to weather the losses. When you get into a mass tort like that and uh, you got all of these cases and you lose the first two, you know, some lawyers pack it up and say no more. I mean, we won that one or the third one. And uh, that, that case did not resolve, it went up on appeal, and the Court of Appeals reversed it and said that there was some evidence that should not have come in. Uh, the Supreme Court took discretionary review. While that was going on, we tried a fourth one, and that one went all the way up until the night of, before verdict. And then the, there was a global settlement that was reached uh, that resolved all of the cases but the one on appeal. But, you know, I remember when I first filed, started filing those cases, um, there was an army of defense lawyers on the other side. And one of the defense lawyers who represented the hospital, uh, when asked what he thought about my lawsuits, was quoted in the newspaper as saying, you know, Mr. Poppy lives in a fairy tale world if he thinks that this stuff actually happened. And one of the other lawyers uh, told me after some depositions, he asked me, he said, uh, Hans, how old is your daughter? And I said, she's five. And he says, you're not going to see any money in these cases until she graduates high school. That turned out not to be the case. Uh, but, but that's the kind of mentality that defense lawyers have in these medical negligence cases is that they're always going to win. And you, if you're not ready to go 
all the way as many times as it takes, you're going to have a short-lived career in this business or you're going to have some hurt feelings or both. Yeah, I think the willingness to risk loss is so important uh, and the ability to recover from loss is so important in our, in our profession. And can you imagine like if uh, football teams, you know, I, I got to watch a historic football game. Unfortunately, I had to watch it on TV because I thought I was still being trial and I get my tickets away. But my Texas a and Aggies beat number one Alabama after, you know, having lost two games to some middle of the pack teams before that. No one thought that could happen. Can you imagine if they just said, you know, we don't have a chance. We're not going to play today. We'll just get That's right. You know, you wouldn't you don't have that incredible victory. And I think the same thing for trials, you know, you have to be willing to try some cases that you have a chance of losing uh, to get those big victories. A- absolutely. I, I tell my associates, I said, you know, a trial lawyer, you better have a short memory uh, because you're going to you're going to lose some cases. So, in, in you know, you got to have a short memory for those losses. And I, I have a, a tradition after every verdict. Every verdict, the next day I'm in the office at my desk working on either that case or the next case, win or lose. The next day, even if it's a Saturday, the verdict comes in on Friday night. On Saturday, I go work out and then I go to the office because I got you got to get right back up on the horse, especially after losses and figure out what's next. Yeah, I give myself a day to feel it. I open up a, a nice bottle of red wine to remind myself I can at least still afford a bottle of red wine, <laughs> you know, a nice bottle. And I and I kind of drink and, and say goodbye, have my wake for the case. And then the next day I work on the next one. And you just have to, and 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 I know it sucks. I'm the client. I mean, it's painful for those clients to lose these cases, but they'll, they'll survive. Uh, there is, they are more resilient than we give them credit. And, and we have to survive because you can't, it doesn't do any good. You've done what you can. And, you know, I've just like yep. if, if a jury gets it wrong, um, that doesn't make me a bad lawyer. Uh, oh, ab- absolutely. <laughs> I've lost cases I should have won, and I've won cases that I should have lost. I mean, it goes 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 both ways. It's just you gotta you gotta take the good with the bad, and you gotta be resilient, and uh, and, and you gotta learn from your losses too. I, I say you gotta have a short memory, but that doesn't mean that you just forget about what happened. You, you got to take what you learned from that case and apply it. To the next case for the next client, and sometimes even for that same client, because you may get to try the case again. We get to appeal too. So, you know, sometimes the cases come back after that, and you say, "What could I have done differently? What could I do?" You know, we do a lot of focus group stuff, so there's not usually a lot of surprises at trial. Sometimes the evidence doesn't come in exactly the way that you thought it was going to come in. And uh, so, what I was saying is, you just got to have a uh, the ability to take those losses and take something positive away from it um, and get right back up on the horse and get ready to do it again. You know, because it's trying cases. Uh, I'm sure you're probably the same way. There is no place that I would rather be in the practice of law than in the courtroom. Now, now the, that first day of trial, you know, I always get a little anxious and I'm like, well, I'll remember how to do this. You know, it, <laughs> <laughs> which is funny, you know, I laugh because, you know, I've tried, you know, close to 30 jury trials and I still get that same feeling every time. But as soon as I get it for one year and I start talking to that jury, it, nothing else matters. I mean, it, it's the one place 
where I can be extremely focused is in the courtroom because I'm only focused on one thing, which is trying this case. I'm not worried about what's going on back at the office. I'm not worried about what's going on back home. It's the one place where you can be completely immersed, and it's just so much fun to try cases. I had so much fun. I, last week uh, was actually the first time after 20, I don't know how many years, 25 plus years of doing this, that I did not feel that nervousness and stuff going in there. Uh, I But I worked a lot on my mindset. I worked a lot on, this is so fun. I have the opportunity to do this. I can't wait to do this. And that joy, people saw it in my step and my in my body language. That joy permeated the case, uh, and it really it helped connect with the jury. Uh, and usually, I'd be nervous, and yeah, I'd be like moving a little. Like if you talk to someone that's ever coached me, like a Sarge Lamont or Josh Carton, like you know, I kind of act weird, like weird body movements, and you get nervous until like about five minutes into it, and then I'm communicating. I finally got rid of that, but it's all more from just thinking of. How fun this is going to be. The outcome's not my job. That's their job. I'm going to trust their right. good people. I'm going to trust them to do their job. Uh, they're taking time out of their lives to do it. And so I'm not going to worry about that. I'm going to worry about the one that's in front of me. I'm going to worry about talking to these people. Seriously, I'm going to worry about getting to know these people, talking to them, listening to them. And I'm not going to worry about whether they're good jurors or bad jurors. i got other people taking notes to worry about that. I'm not going to worry about what's going to happen in a week or two when the case is over. I'm going to worry about this right now. An opening statement, I'm going to worry about telling a story and giving these people the information they need to do their job. I'm not worried about whether I'm winning or losing. I'm not worried about what the other guy's going to say. I'm not worried about how I look. I'm just going to worry about that. Uh, and I'm not really worried. I'm just going to enjoy it. And it's made, it's made such a difference. Oh, I can see where it would. Absolutely. And especially, you know, once you get comfortable in your own presence, uh, and, and you're being real. And that's the one thing that I have noticed over the years is that lawyers who are trying to follow someone else's script or style, it, it's always obvious that they're not comfortable doing that. I mean, you yeah. can just tell whether that's really them or whether they're trying to sound lawyerly or sound official. And I'm like, if, if people would, if lawyers would just figure out who they are, which isn't always easy, you know, figuring out who you are as a lawyer. Uh, but once you figure out who you are, um, having the courage to let the jury see who you really are as a lawyer um, or, and as a person and as a person, because. I think that juries are constantly trying to figure out, can I trust this man or woman? Who who here can I believe? Yeah. And if you're not being authentic, they don't know if they can trust you. Because if you're not being your real self, how do they know that you're putting on the real evidence? Um, you know, I'm a David Ball fan, like probably most of your listeners are. Uh, and, you know, I know David Ball has said for years and years and years, um, you know, wear, you know, grab clothing, wear, you know, don't wear your Rolex to trial, which I can agree with that. But, you know, I, I thought about that and I thought about it a lot. And and, and I can understand, I, I certainly can understand and appreciate David's thought process, which is you don't want the jury to be distracted by you 
and I and I get that, but I simply am not comfortable, you know, wearing suits and sport coats and jackets that I wouldn't normally wear, and I wouldn't feel, and I won't feel comfortable in front of the jury doing that. Uh, so so I wear my nice suit to trial because it makes me feel comfortable. And and I'm one of those guys that say, you know, look good, feel good, feel good, play good, play good, win. Yeah. And I want to give and I want to give myself the best opportunity to win the case. And that means I need to feel comfortable because if I came in like David suggests, wearing, you know, a jacket that doesn't fit and khaki pants and you know that isn't me and i'm not going to communicate well with the jury and it's going to be incongruous with the case you put on so if you've spent a hundred thousand dollars in extra that's going to come out bingo you've got all these beautiful graphics and exhibits and you're wearing a jacket that doesn't fit you right they know that's bullshit that's you're exactly right you're you're a hundred percent right because and and the way that I look at it, and I pulled yours afterwards. I mean, I, I have a full time PhD trial consultant that works for me, wow. and and so we've talked to the jurors afterwards. And and let me tell you, when this really hit home for me, this really hit home for me after my first seven figure verdict. We interviewed the jurors, and one of the jurors said, and she was an older lady. She was probably in her late seventies. And my PhD uh, consultant asked her, what was the first thing that you all talked about when you got back there into deliberations? And she said, the first thing we talked about is someone brought up the fact that Mr. Poppy's shoes were shined every day. That's what they saw. That was the first thing that they talked about was the fact that my shoes were shined every day. And so who knows what all they're paying attention to, but they were paying attention to that. And that made some of the jurors think if he is if he is putting as much attention into his appearance coming to court for trial, then he must be doing that for us. Because who else would you be doing it for? And, and and I'm not always I'm, I'm getting a little bit better at appearance. I'm not always the best at that. Uh, but I think the biggest thing is what makes you comfortable. What makes yes. you, you know, whereas, you know, I usually wear, you know, slacks and a jacket, you know, the, not an actual suit during trial, but it's more because that's what makes me feel comfortable. You know, that's what it's, that's what matters. What matters is because for me, it would be a distraction to me if I wasn't comfortable in the courtroom. And mm -hmm. for somebody else, what makes them comfortable may be completely different, maybe 100 percent different. And you've got to do what makes you comfortable in the courtroom. You know, we asked the jury um, after this trial if, if you know, anything that I did offended them or um, if they, you know, were distracted by my, my suit jacket or my suit. And they all said, no, we actually thought Mr. Poppy, you know, looked very, very nice. And, and one of the jurors said, and that let us know, the fact that he dresses nicely let us know that that he was taking this case seriously, we should take the case seriously. And they said it let us know what kind of lawyer he was. And right. and and and, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase this, but they said, you know, 
because he dressed nice, we knew he was a successful lawyer and successful lawyers don't take bad cases. That was kind of their mentality where I could see where somebody might think if you come in and you look shabby and you look shoddy, they may think maybe he's not a good lawyer. Maybe he doesn't have a good case. I think you're right. I definitely don't dress shabby or shabby. I mean, I wear a nice jacket. And, and, I, and it's funny. I, I wore a jacket uh, to the, you know, we had resolved the case over the weekend. We had to have the jurors come in. Uh, and I have a, a nice jacket, but it's kind of like a pinkish purplish with a plaid. It's not something I would normally wear to trial. Uh, but I love it. I and mean, it's me. It, 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 I'm, as I'm getting older, I'm starting to just come into myself, dress a little flashier. And, uh, they had no problem with. I mean, just, they, yeah. they didn't realize I wasn't gonna. Uh, we weren't having trial that day. They didn't see. It was on my own head uh, that I couldn't wear that jacket. I think I'm going to next time because you should. Why can't I be me? Now the you one should. that has the skulls all over it, I probably won't wear for trial. <laughs> but well, I, I, I do. I do have one that I do that I do take to trial where the skulls are on the inside. <laughs> oh, okay. No, this is on the outside. <laughs> I wear it for speaking sometimes, uh, depending on the audience, but. Uh, but no, I think that the, the most important thing, and, and it's hard, this has been, the trial skills aren't that hard to pick up. I mean, be nice, learn a story, tell it, listen. The learning to love yourself so that other people can learn to love you and, and accept you, uh, including jurors, and you get, get it, so you get out of your own way. To me, that has taken a lot more work. It, it does take a lot more work. And, and just... Being confident in yourself. I told one of my associates the other day, you know, she said, um, I feel like I've got imposter syndrome sometimes. And I said, imposters don't get imposter syndrome. <laughs> you know what I mean? O- only, only real, when, when the real people doing real stuff are the only people who get imposter syndromes and they're not imposters. Yeah. And that's the thing. And that's the thing we got to remind ourselves is that, you know, if, if you are a trial lawyer, then be a trial lawyer and go try cases and get yourself to the point where you are comfortable being in the courtroom. I mean, that's one of the things that I make a conscious effort to do is occupy the entire courtroom. Yep. I, I make it a point to, to use up the entirety of the space in the courtroom. And I will, you know, have my anchor points in the courtroom where the jury knows when I go there, something's about to happen. When, when, when Hans goes to the middle of the courtroom, to the timeline, something's about to happen. Uh, but, but, I've seen a lot of lawyers that just seems like they're just going through the motion. They're, it's yeah. just rote and ritual, and they're not thinking about the space and, and where do I need to be to have the greatest impact? And what types of things do I need to do so that the jury knows that they can trust me? Now, I'll give you an example, Michael. In this most recent trial, I called almost all of the defense's witnesses in my case in chief. In fact, I think that the only people that were left for them to call were their two expert witnesses. I mean, I think I called everybody. And 
I had deposed everybody. And I started out every single examination with the defense witnesses the same way. Hi, Mr. Witness. We met before. My name's Hans Poppy. They say yes. And I said, do you recall coming to my office to give your deposition? And they say yes. And I said, I asked you questions and you answered them. Yes. And I was nice to you. Yes. I was polite to you. Yes. I offered you beverages. Yes. I didn't raise my voice with you. No. I allowed you to give your full answer to my questions without interruption. They said yes. And they would always smile. And, and it got to a point where when I would do that with the witnesses, the jury would kind of chuckle because they knew what the questions were. And, you know, and the witness was kind of a little bit, you know, awkward, like, yeah, you, you were nice to me. Yeah, I mean, so, so the jury kind of got a kick out of it. Well, when we got, well, and, and why was I doing that, Mark? Well, the reason why I was doing that is because I wanted the jury to know that I'm the same guy outside of the courtroom as they are seeing right now in the courtroom. I, I'm being authentic. I'm having this opposing witness confirm to the jury that outside the presence of the jury, outside the presence of the judge, when it was just me, the witness, the lawyer, and the court reporter, I was kind, I was polite, and I was professional. That this isn't, what you're seeing here isn't just an act. This is the way I am. And this is the way I am with these adversarial witnesses. Well, here's what happened, Mike. So we go through all of the defense witnesses that I call in my case in chief. We get to the defendant's main expert, who is a, a pain management physician from New York City. And he's very nice on direct examination with the physician's lawyer. Well, when I get up to ask him a question, I say, um, hello, doctor. Um, we met in my office. He doesn't respond. And I said, do you recall me taking your deposition by Zoom? He doesn't respond. And I said, did you understand my question? And he goes, oh, was there a question? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I asked if you remember me taking your deposition. And he goes, I don't know what's relevant about that. Are you going to ask me some questions about this case? And so he went off script. The jury didn't like it. He, had, he, he attacked me, and, 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 and it got it only escalated after that. I mean, he fought with me. To it, at, at one point, I said to him, I had to get the judge to admonish him twice to answer the questions because he would not answer questions. He would go off on these rambling tirades, even though I was trying to cross-examine him with his deposition. He wouldn't even read the question so I that I could that. read. The, he wouldn't even read the question so that I could read the answer. And at one point, I even said to him, uh, doctor, this may be how they do trials in New York City, but this is not how we do them in Kentucky. You have to answer the questions that I ask. And I said, Your Honor, would you make please instruct the witness to answer the question? And she said, yes, you're to answer Mr. Poppy's questions. And so that, that small little thing that I was doing with all of the witnesses endeared, I think, endeared me to the jury 
and when the defense witness would not cooperate and just say, yeah, I remember you taking my deposition. And yes, you were polite to me. It completely changed the dynamic of that witness because he was good on direct examination. He was very good on direct examination. But I think all of his credibility went away because he wanted to fight with me when the jury knows I'm not a fighter. Enjoying the episode? Do you wish you had Trial Lawyer Nation on the go? Well, wish no more. The Trial Lawyer Nation app is available now exclusively on iOS devices. Access our entire podcast library, create a favorites list, search for old and new episodes, and much more. It truly is Trial Lawyer Nation at your fingertips. Download this free app now and enjoy the top legal podcast for plaintiff attorneys wherever you go. And and he totally exposed himself for what he was because he was one way. If he was there to tell the truth, he would listen to all the questions and answer them the same way. Uh, and right. when he's fighting you but trying to help them, then he's clearly an advocate and not an expert. And, you know, the, people don't like being lied to. And I think that's always helpful. That's right. And that leads me to the third thing that I think is important about trying cases and getting verdicts. And that is you need some help from the other side. Yeah. Yeah. At every, every big verdict I've been a part of, I've gotten help from the other side. It hasn't been, you know, I did everything right and they did everything right. It's been, I did almost everything right. And the other side gave me some opportunities that we were able to capitalize on. And that was one of them. When their main liability expert blows up on the stand and has to be admonished by the judge twice, that's the kind of thing that can alter a verdict one way or the other. So you said like on your cardiac cases, uh, there was like an improper or, or at least an incentive. Uh, I think you proved it was improper incentive paid by the hospital to the doctors. What, what, what kind of incentive are you talking about? Sure. Um, and, and that's another lesson that we learned is in the, 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 first, the first trial took three weeks. By the time we got to the fifth trial, we had it down to seven days, seven to 10 days. So we really learned in that first trial that we had overwhelmed the jury. We brought in an expert from Washington, D.C. on, you know, the, the, the billing law and the kickback laws uh, and, and how all of that worked. And it was just so complicated that we, we really made a mistake in, in overcomplicating the case. And so eventually we got the case really simple. But what they were doing is the the hospital wanted to grow the cardiac practice because it was their most profitable area. They lose money on OBGYN. They lose money on the emergency room. But cardiac is where they make all of their money. And what they did was there was two groups of cardiologists in this small community. And we learned, and it was actually a, a whistleblower case um, where they ended up paying, going by memory here, I think that the whistleblower case was around 20 million, 17 to 20 million dollars that they had to pay back to the government. Um, ultimately, um, two doctors from that community went to federal prison 
we found another batch of patients in Ashland, Kentucky, about three hours away. A doctor there went to prison as well. So in total, out of these two groups of cardiac cases, three uh, cardiologists went to federal prison. So what the, what the first hospital did was there were two cardiology groups. And what they, the hospital says was, look, we will change the way your cardiology practice works so that we will pay you what's called a work relative value unit. Nothing wrong with that. Lots of physicians get paid on WRVUs. But what they did was they said, and we will stair step them. So your first 500 RVUs are worth X. Your next 500 RVUs are worth X plus Y. Your next 500 RVUs are worth X plus Y plus Z with no caps on the number of RVUs that any physician could perform and with no supervision to ensure that the services that were being provided were medically necessary. Well, like my expert said, the problem with incentives is they work. And so what we saw was the um, rate of cardiac procedures in this little community in eastern Kentucky went like this. And then when the when, when our lawsuit gets filed and when the federal government starts investigating, same patient population, mind you, same number of physicians, they drop. They fit like this. So we had a very clear story to tell. It's just we messed it up in the beginning. But by trial number three, we got very clear on the story. So it, it was that was the problem is that they had built a system, and and they did other things too, which is where it got kind of complicated. They, you know, one of the physicians uh, had a um, billing practice. Well, they, they, they made his, they bought his billing practice and made the physician's wife the owner of the billing practice. He sold it to her for a dollar and they gave her a contract where she would do all of the billing collection. Well, in the first trials, we were alleging, hey, that's an improper kickback. You know, this transferring the billing practice for a dollar you're really just trying to incentivize the husband by an end around to do right. this stuff. And and all of that was true, but it was just complicated. What the jury did understand, and they ultimately called it a monopoly board, is a demonstrative exhibit that we made that showed the relationships between the hospital and this medical group and this medical group and how the money was flowing all around and how they made all of these cardiologists medical directors and were paying them $100,000 a year or $50,000 a year to be medical directors when they aren't really doing anything. So we just started showing all of these improper financial relationships through this board that was intentionally complex. Because once the jury got the case, they basically said, if you got to go through all of that to get the money from here to here, there's something fishy going on. It's, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it shouldn't be that. So we didn't have to bring in the Washington, D.C. expert on all of the federal regulations. We just walked them through. You did this and the money flows here and then you bought this group and the money flows through here and then you incentivize them this way and so on and so forth. And then the jury got it. So we didn't need the high price expert. We just needed to talk common sense. And then they got it. 
And you ended up, you said, with hundreds of patients, uh, with a smaller, hundreds of clients, with a smaller firm. How do you manage having so many clients? I have the best staff. They are extremely organized. And we had, and I don't think I mentioned this, Michael, this was not a short-lived piece of litigation. We filed the first lawsuit in 2011. We did not resolve the last case until 2019. So this was a long piece of litigation. And the first seven years of it, my office was basically devoted to this 90%. 90% of what we did was the cardiac litigation. We had a full-time associate from my office on it. We had a full-time, we had two associates from Watts Guerra on it. We had two and a half to three associates from Tom Rhodes's office. Um, I had one dedicated attorney on it and then a peripheral attorney that was also working on it. We had weekly uh, meetings, morning meetings on um, every every Friday morning. We had a call-in meeting where we would discuss and strategize. Um, and so Michael Watts's mass torts office handled the logistics of keeping all of the mailings going out because we would do uh, lots of mailings, updating the clients on what was happening we had multiple town hall meetings to let them know what was happening um, because we had we probably had seven mediations, six or seven mediations, and we would have to have a town hall before every mediation, get global authority, uh, get documents signed. So Michael's mass torts office handled all of the robocalls for the clients and all of the client mailing, and they were the ones that obtained and housed all of the medical records because there was, I mean, it was 500 clients, lots of, lots and lots and lots of medical records because um, these people usually had significant medical histories and we had to get medical records from all of their providers, not just the hospital we were suing and not just the doctors we were suing. So it was voluminous. I've, I've got a picture of the paper file. And the paper file for the Marshall case, which was the first one we tried, took up an entire file. It was, I think, I think it was 70 binders of, of pleadings. Um, and that was just one case out of 500. Like I said, we tried four of them. So it was a massive piece of litigation. And then sometime around 2012, 2013, we filed another piece of litigation. Same allegations, different hospital, um, and that one had about 300 plaintiffs in it. The, the interesting thing about that one was um, that case took six or seven years. We didn't get to take a single deposition. What? We didn't get to take a single deposition in the case. Um, the hospital was in a fight with their insurance company about coverage, and there was a deck action. And the hospital kept, and in that case, there were 20 doctors, 20 defendant doctors. And the way that the hospital's employment contracts were, they had to indemnify and defend each of the doctors. And so the hospital had its own lawyer, but then it had 
20 defense lawyers for each one of the doctors that it was paying. Wow. And the insurance company wasn't paying anything. And so the hospital's lawyers kept going to court, encouraging the court to handcuff us because their argument was, Judge, the more money that we spend defending the case reduces the potential pot of money for these plaintiffs. And so, you know, wait, wait, wait. And so we did that for like literally six, six or seven years. And we would go to court once a month, once every other month. I would be begging the court to unleash us and they would be begging the court to keep us on a leash. And, you know, finally, the court said, this has gone on long enough. I'm going to let Mr. Poppy move forward with discovery. And doggone it, wouldn't you know it, Michael, the case is settled the next month. Wow. So uh, one last thing. So for the lawyers in the audience that are brave enough to still do medical negligence cases, what do you recommend they do to try to find this? You said something else, this business practice, whatever it is, that makes it more than just a bad medical decision case. Sure. Um, the first thing I would say is bless your heart if you're still doing medical malpractice cases, especially if you're doing them in Texas. <laughs> um, it, but the the thing that I tell my associates is, you know, like I said, there are three cases. There's the case you sign up, there's the case that you prepare to try, and there's the case that you end up trying. And the most important thing about that is getting the right case signed up. And then once you've got the case signed up, you really have to look and say, what else is there besides just medicine? Where else? Uh, you know, is this a business decision case? Is this a um, somebody made a mistake and changed the medical records case? Or is this some other kind of case? But whatever it is, you've got to look for a different angle. And as trial lawyers, that's what we got to do. We've got to be creative about looking at our cases and not saying, oh, this is just a plain vanilla case. You got to find the why. The why is the important part. It is, if this were a criminal case, it would be the motive. What's the motive here? What is the reason this bad thing happened? Because if all you're going to do is walk into court and say, oh, the doctor made a mistake, you're going to lose that case most of the time. There has to be, at least you would prefer, that you find the answer to the question why. Because that's what the jury wants to know, why. Thank you so much. If someone wants to reach out to you because they want to learn more, or maybe they have a great case in Kentucky and they'd like some help, or even outside of Kentucky, they'd like some help. Uh, how do how do people get find you? I'm very easy to find. I'm probably the only Hans Poppy lawyer there is in the country, if not the <laughs> world. <laughs> so you can Google me. Uh, my website is poppy p o p p e lawfirm dot com. Office number is right there. My email address is my first name h a n s at poppylawfirm dot com. And that'll all be in the show notes. And I encourage everyone to reach out to Hans if you've got something where you can help. He's a great lawyer. And on top of that, he's a great human being. Thank you all for joining us today. I look forward to talking to you all again next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates 
insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive, plaintiff lawyer-only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us. You can reach Delisi Friday by calling 210-941-1301 or send an email to delisi at cowanlaw.com. That's D-E-L-I-S-I at cowanlaw.com. She will coordinate a time for Michael Cowan to speak with you in person or by phone to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to, nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our host, guest, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.